Man, I've had a really good time this weekend with you guys. Uh, my soul has been encouraged, sometimes traveling a lot. Uh, you get weary, and I have to say, even in physical tiredness, uh, my soul has been encouraged this weekend. I appreciate you all and what the Lord is doing here in Albuquerque uh, through you and through the ministry of the Word here. Uh, you should be encouraged, and I, I pray that you would be a part of what the Lord is doing. Uh, it's an exciting thing to see when when we grow together in the beauty of the word, and we grow in unity together, and we begin to see what the Lord does impacting uh, even a community and reaching beyond that, which is a beautiful thing. And so uh, this is the beauty of his church. This is the beauty of the word of God and what it does to make us something that we cannot be on our own. And so this morning, I, I want to talk to us actually about that very subject. We've been talking all weekend about the word and how the word impacts the way that we think about even very complex and, and difficult issues. And so this morning, I, I want us to do a bit of an examination. I, I want us to think deeply about the word and the way the word works in us. I don't just want to talk about the sufficiency of the word. I really want to bring clarity from the Bible on how the word demonstrates its sufficiency in our everyday life. And when we talk about sufficiency and authority, my subject this morning is simply this, the sufficiency and authority of Scripture to diagnose and cure the soul of man. The sufficiency and authority of the Scripture to diagnose and to cure the soul of man. Now that's a difficult task because the, the Bible actually tells us that, that you and I can't even discern our own thoughts. Jeremiah 17, 9, the, the heart is deceitful and wicked, who can know it? But yet the claim of Scripture is that it can discern our thoughts. We, we could have used the two passages, actually, that Pastor Ryan read this morning. We, we could go to Psalm 19, which is a beautiful expression of the Word and its vitality. We could have gone to Psalm 119, look at the beauty and the, the glory of the Word of God and what He's kindly given to us to help us in a dark world. could have gone to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and, and talked about the usefulness of the Word to to be profitable toward us that changes us and equips us for every single good work. We could have done that. And this morning, uh, we're going to do a complimentary passage in Hebrews chapter 4. So if you will, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to talk to you about sufficiency. Uh, what is it that I mean about sufficiency? I mean, what are we talking about in, uh, regarding this particular term, sufficiency? In, in what way is the Bible Sufficient. This is what a, a decent definition would be uh, relative to sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency is the belief that the Scripture has everything we need for life and godliness. That's actually 2 Peter 1, 3. I would continue that to say the Bible is necessary to understand life and has in it all that was necessary to live life the way that we were designed to live it as we navigate the curse of the world on our journey home. This is the beauty of the word is it's sufficient to accomplish what's required of us as we walk through this life from God. It is sufficient to help us to understand the problems that we face and how we aim at cure in the deepest parts of our being. Now I don't know about you but that's encouraging to me because uh, I've tried a lot of different ways to try and repair myself and to fix myself and to think of ways that, that, that are going to improve myself and I always seem to run into difficulty. But when we lay ourselves bare before the word, the word in its sufficiency tells us things about ourselves. It explains things about us that we can't perceive with our natural eye. 
So this morning, the reason that I coupled together sufficiency and authority, and I, I want you to think with me on this particular part, because this is absolutely critical. I, I don't think this is a negotiable doctrine of Scripture, the sufficiency of the Bible, because I think it's coupled with the authority of the Bible. Actually, I would describe it, I, I think they're two sides of the same coin. I, I think if sufficiency goes away in the way in which we practice the Scriptures, the authority then is gone away with it. The reformers used to say that, that the scriptures are sufficient for faith and practice, not just for what we believe doctrinally and praise the Lord for that. That's necessary and it's authoritative to tell us what is true, but it's also authoritative and sufficient to tell us what to do and how to live life. Now, as we think about those ideas, we might ask a question, well, well, how is sufficiency and authority so tightly tied together? I mean, how are those two things linked? Dale, how are you, how are you putting those two things together, and, and why in the world is that important? Well, it's important to me, first of all, because the Bible claims that it's sufficient. The, the second reason, I would say, is historically what we've seen is anytime we see the practice of the Scriptures go away, we've also seen the authority drift with it. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that. What I mean by that is... If we were to take in the modern day some of the human wisdom that we have on how to see people and how to understand people, how do we understand the difficulties of people's lives? How do we understand the problems that people face? And let's say we were to look at all the best that the world has to offer in human wisdom. There's a lot to say. There are, did you know, over 450 named different types of therapies and psychologies on how to understand man and their problems. That sounds a bit confused to me because what they're doing is, is they're explaining lots of different worldviews about how to see man and how do we understand what's broken in him and then therefore how do we repair him. And psychologists would say things like this. They would inform us that we all have specific and distinct needs. If we were to listen to him to describe those types of answers to our problems, they would say, well, and with these needs, you have the answers to your problems inside of you. And, and if we were to continue to listen to him, he, he would tell us something like this. We need to, uh, in, with our needs, build ourselves up. We need to learn to actually love ourselves. The, the biggest hindrance for you is that, that you don't love yourself enough so that you can learn to love other people. I mean, that's why your relationships are broken is, is you just don't love you enough. Well, see, an interesting thing is that if we believe that, that's in contrast to actually what the Bible teaches about us. You see, what naturally happens if, if I start to look to the world's wisdom to explain the difficulty and the struggle that I have in my own personal life, what now happens is I'm saying that that person is an authority on how to live life because the Bible is not sufficient to speak to that particular issue in my life. You see, what naturally happens is as we listen to this as an authority, we no longer, for practice, we no longer listen to the Bible and its authoritativeness over our own life. You see, I find those things interesting because that puts us in a very dangerous place. It puts us in a place where, first of all, we have to make the statement that the Bible doesn't tell us what to do relative to needs and building ourselves up and this is the way to health and happiness. But in reality, what we see is a very different perspective from Scripture. Take, first of all, this idea that we have needs. David Pallison makes this observation when he's talking about James chapter 1. And our desires, James chapter 4, these desires that are often evil and wicked within us. And he says, we do not have needs, we do desires. 
The things that we desire, we do just as we love, just as we do fear, just as we do love, just as we do hope, just as we do trust, and all the rest of it. We don't have particular needs. The Bible describes us in terms that we we do our desires. We have desires. We have wants. We have passions. We have affections. But what if we were to continue to describe some of those ideas that not only do we have needs, but we also have these answers to our problems inside of us. And, and, and really the reality to true health and happiness is that we, we simply build ourselves up. You see, the problem with that is it's giving us a pattern for which to live. And we're saying the Bible's not sufficient to help us there. So we're going to look to somebody else to give us sufficient information to fill in the gaps where the Bible's missing. And now that person becomes an authority over this category or this area of my life. So the authority of the scripture begins to wane. Do you see it? You see, but the, the, the truth is that the Bible does speak to those things. Jesus, in fact, in Luke 9, 23, makes a very distinct and clear statement when he's making a call to those who wish to be his disciple. Jesus says, if you wish to be my disciple, he's saying, if you wish to follow me, if you wish to go my way, what's the very first thing he says to do? You must deny yourself. You see, there's something intrinsic that Jesus understands about the human self post-Genesis 3. Is that the human self is corrupted based on Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5. And we see the infection of sin that what it is that we love most and what it is that we're in bondage to most is a love of our self. And what Jesus says is if you wish to be my disciple, you must first deny yourself. It's not that the Bible doesn't speak to that. It's that we don't like the way the Bible speaks to it. And so we dismiss it as if it's not sufficient. You see, there's another warning, and the Apostle Paul describes this. The psychologist says, well, the answer is to, to build yourself. It's a distinct way of thinking about humanism, is to build the human being. That's the, the highest uh, aspect that we know in, in humanity is the human being. We dismiss the creator. We describe humanity has power and authority. We say, build the self, build the self. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3? He tells us to put no confidence in the flesh. You see, the Bible speaks very sufficiently to these issues. And what happens when we begin to to listen to outside influence and human wisdom on how to think about life, how to understand life and how to live life, and what we think is happy and leads us to happy and healthy lives, is now we say the Bible's not sufficient. But not only that, we have to argue then that the Bible is not authoritative over this part of my life. And what inevitably begins to happen is we look at the wisdom that comes from outside and we begin to look at scripture and we begin to try and reinterpret the way Jesus, what, what could he have meant in Luke 9, 23? If the psychologist says the way that I aim at happiness is to build the self, surely Jesus is not telling me to crucify myself. Right? Surely he's not telling me to deny myself. We begin to see that that authority starts to wane. I'm from, uh, from Florida. You probably could tell by the accent. No, it sounds like I'm from Georgia, but that's nonetheless. <clears throat> I'm from Florida, and one of the things that I love to do when I go back home is, uh, is visit. I don't like to stay at the beach. It's very sandy there, uh, and sand gets in places it ought not get. And, uh, and so I like to visit, and I enjoy when we, when we go to go watch a, a sunrise there. And it's interesting because um, the never-ending sound of the waves what a calming thing. The Bible describes and uses this language that this is like the grace of God consistently to us. It's like the waves of the shore 
rolling in and in and in, over and over and over again. But I would say what, what happens when we begin to dismiss the sufficiency of the Bible and we begin to look to other places is it's really a lot like the seashore. It's a lot like the waves that are crashing on the sea. You see, I can go and visit and I can enjoy that, that time and I can watch unendingly and listen and hear the waves crashing in over and over and over again. And I can't see the effect that happens to the seashore by the waves rolling in in a day's time. I might even come back next week and I'm not going to see much of an effect of the, the seashore rolling in wave after wave after wave. I might not even see anything after a year, but after a decade, you know what starts to happen? is we begin to see erosion that occurs because that relentless and unending power of the ocean. Through wave after wave after wave, we begin to see the, the seashore eroded. You see, that's much like what happens in the church. Whenever we, we love God's word for doctrine, but we dismiss it and look elsewhere for sufficiency and practice in living. And what that becomes then is like the waves of the sea, pounding against the strong and sturdy doctrine that we uphold in the word of God. And what we begin to see happen over time is we begin to look to other places as source of, sources of authority for these areas of life. And it begins to erode that sturdy doctrine that we once held so dear. So you can't separate sufficiency and authority. The two, by necessity, have to go together. And the reason is because theology was not simply meant to be cerebral or intellectual. Theology, God in his grace, in his kindness toward us, has given us himself in his word. For what purpose? So that it would be lived. It's always intended to be boots on the ground when we think about theology. When we think about who God is, it's intended to have a human response. Faith and practice have to go together. So now we turn to Hebrews chapter, chapter 4. And we discuss this issue of sufficiency. So we've made this claim that the Bible says that it's sufficient. And does the Bible claim that it can diagnose or discern and understand the human soul and offer its cure? Hebrews 4, start in verse 11. This is what the word of the Lord says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now let me pause here because you're preached too well. And so by the preaching of the word, you understand that we probably shouldn't start our sermon in the middle of a thought. So let me catch you up to speed here. What we're trying to do here, the, the writer of Hebrews is, is building this case even from chapter one. And he's trying to demonstrate that Christ is the sufficient way to rest. That understanding who Christ is, we can, we can understand the prophets, but now Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the picture of how we enter into God's rest. Jesus is the promise that God was talking about from time beginning. And so now he enters here in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And he, he's describing a couple of illustrations. And he, he's using this language because he's writing to, to Hebrew people. He's saying this was like the Israelites of old. During the time of Moses and Joshua. And he, he cycles through and he says... Today it's important that you hear the words of salvation and obey. He says, because like those people, they heard the promise of God. The, the promise of a, of a land flowing with milk and honey. A land of rest. And through their disobedience, they denied the promises of God and never entered into that rest. And he's using that as an illustration now to bring that to our attention today. 
as he talks about in Hebrews 3.13, the deceitfulness of sin and how we should exhort or admonish one another as long as it's called today because sin is deceitful, which would lead to disobedience and lead to us missing God's rest. So here, this is exactly what he's describing, is let us therefore strive, let us work hard, let us uh, be diligent in the way in which we pursue this rest. And now he's going to tell us how that happens. He's going to tell us how that happens. You know, sometimes when you get sick, uh, you need surgery. Nobody likes to think about surgery. Can you think about what surgery would have been like before anesthesia? Right? Surgery doesn't seem so bad now. Uh, That always helps me. I've had to go under the knife once. Uh, You know, and it's quite an anxious moment. It's an anxious night before. But one of the things that I realized is that Uh, Going under uh, surgical procedure uh, actually works out in the end, even though it's painful, even though there was cutting that needed to be done, it was actually a path to, to health. I see this is really what God is describing here. Part of it is we're, we're aiming at rest because right now we're not at rest. We desire what's to come and what God has provided for us because in the here and now, it's a struggle. It's a difficult life. We're, we're, it's a life full of curse. It's a life full of brokenness. And yet here he turns our attention to the pattern. This is how it happens. This is how we enter God's rest. Is the word begins to shape and teach and train and guide us and help us. He, he's going to teach us here that, that Jesus actually provides this promise of God of rest. Now, how does he go about doing this? The first thing he says in verse 12 is, he says, For the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So here, the writer of Hebrews goes to describe the the pattern, the means by which we enter this rest. And what I love about this is he's actually not expected us to to figure out our own way to rest. He's not said, there's something to aim at, there's a goal, it's heaven now, with your human wisdom, figure it out. You see, that would be a detriment. Because every aspect of human wisdom that we see unfolded in scripture, when we pursue it, it leads to death and destruction. That's not a demonstration of a good God to you. So God says, yes, the aim is rest, but, but I've provided what you need to get there. And he says, I've provided you the word of God. Now, some writers say that this is talking specifically about Jesus. I think yes, but it's not only talking about Jesus as the, the living expression of the word of God. I think it's also encompassing in a, in a generic way uh, the totality of what God has provided in his, in his revelation. But something he says is an effect of the word, is that the word makes us alive. It's living. It brings life. So when we think about coming to faith in Christ, I couldn't think of this passage in the first service. Maybe it's I'm just vocabulary deficient after all weekend. Uh, But it was good that you had participatory effort, right? Hearing the word is not a spectator sport, which was great. But the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. You see, what happens is that darkened soul, 
The soul that the Bible describes in Ephesians 2 as dead, the word says it's, it's living. It means that it speaks to the darkness of where we are and it brings us to life. It meets us in the place that we are. The Bible also says that it's not just living, it's also, it's also active. And the beauty of this word, I think, really helps us to understand the vitality of the word. That the word is not some ancient book that's out of date. The idea that it's living and active coupled together means that it doesn't matter when we were born at any point in history, no matter what culture we grew up in, no matter what language we speak, no matter what our home life was like and what our loves and affections are, this word is living and active for you. It means that it's appropriate to give us wisdom today. No matter where you find yourself, what level of socioeconomic status, what language you speak, how old you are, this word is, this word is active. You see, I think this is important because the word being active, it, it means that it's doing something. Part of the reason you come on a Sunday is you, you sit under the word to hear what the word says. And the point of that is not just so that you can check off a box and make yourself feel better that you heard what God said. The point is that we hear and learn to do what the word says. That, that we hear and we sit under it as if we're judged by what the word says. This is a part of what he's describing here is the Bible is living and active. Now, if we were to describe this, we know Jesus teaches this very thing in Matthew chapter 7. We are not just to be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer. See, it, it profits you nothing if all you do is hear the word. It profits you nothing if you just sit and hear and want to learn about God, but don't want to know him and walk with him. The point of the revelation of scripture is so that we would know God and understand him so that it would change the way that we respond in every aspect of life. Part of the idea here that, that the word of God is active is, is really a demonstration, a call to uh, us doing what the word says. Now, I think this is important because I, I think we can pause here and we could look at the other wisdom that there is in life. And again, let's go to secular psychology. Uh, some of you have studied that. I've studied that. It's been a part of, uh, I have a bachelor's degree in, in psychology. And all they're trying to do, listen, if God isn't real, what psychologists are trying to propose is just a simple philosophy of the way of seeing the world. So I'm not demeaning them when I say this. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to study humanity by looking at all of us and comparing all of us. Do you ever do that? Do you, you probably don't go anywhere without thinking, I wonder what she's going to wear today. Or I wonder uh, what TV shows that they watched last night that I need to catch up on so that I can be a part of the conversation. Do, do we ever do things like that? We have a tendency to compare ourselves. Do I look as nice as he does or she does? Do, do, do I sound as smart and as intelligent as, as they are? You see, this is common for us in humanity. And what we've tried to do in psychology, we've tried to, to, to study the masses by looking at humanity to say that this is what's common in humanity. Can I tell you the dangers of that? Because God will never judge you in relation to another person. They don't dictate to you what the Bible says is normal. You see, looking at some of the, the reflections of psychology on man is, is really a lot like you looking at your face in some sort of fun mirror. They do some sort of circus in town, right? You ever walk through a fun, uh, a fun house, a, 
a house full of fun mirrors that are shaped differently. And the funny thing about that is when you walk through that maze of mirrors and you look at yourself, it's quite hilarious because you can see a little bit of who you are, but you don't see exactly what you look like. Maybe a more modern way to talk about that is, do you ever find that your kids discovered the, the camera on your iPhone? And what's funny, what they love about it is they see a semblance of themselves, but it's often jaded to such a degree that makes it quite comedic, doesn't it? And then I find those things later, and before I delete them, I look through all of them, and I get a good chuckle right by myself. You see, the funny thing is, is that's how you and I live life often. As we live life comparing ourselves to other people, as if understanding them is going to tell us about the deep crevices of our heart. Can I tell you that what the word of God says is it's active to do that work. James really gives a picture of this in James 1, 22 through 25, where he, he, he commands us to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers. And he says, when we hear the word, we're like a natural man who looks at his face in the mirror, but then we walk away because we don't do it and we forget the type of person that we are. That doesn't mean we're going to cease comparing and cease trying to understand who we are. We're just going to look in a different direction. We're going to look in a different mirror. We're never going to see ourselves for who we really are. But then he goes on to tell us that we should peer long in the perfect law of liberty. Not just being a hearer of the word, but being a doer. Why? Because now, at this point, we will see the type of person that we really are. The word is active. Maybe another way we could describe that is when you see people in Scripture who truly see God, they see themselves differently than they did before that encounter. Take somebody like Isaiah, for example. In Isaiah 1 through 5, Isaiah's being a prophet. He's doing what a prophet does. He sees the people of Israel and he's telling them what God says in warning. And he sees that they're disobeying God and he's warning them about the judgment that's to come. And he's seeing them rightly, he's seeing them appropriately. But I can imagine that as a prophet, you have a tendency because we're people that we would be boastful that, that I'm not like those guys, right? And then interestingly enough, what happens is in Isaiah 6, he has an encounter with the Almighty. And now he's no longer looking at the, the faults of the children of Israel. He's now looking face to face before God. Do you notice how differently he sees himself now? He's no longer concerned about what he looks like in relationship to other people. He now sees himself before God and his response is, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of the same. You see what happens when we see God is it levels the playing field. We're all the same. We all live in darkness. We all live in frailty. We all live in difficulty. We all struggle in many ways. That's what happens when we encounter God. This is a part of what we're describing here, that the word of God is living. and The word of God is active. It does something. It helps us to see something different. Now, how does it go about doing that? And it tells us in the word, if we continue, that it's, a, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, this is an interesting description, I think, because he's describing the, the sharpness of the word of God in the way the, the word of God is now going to diagnose us. It's going to reach deeper into the inner man than anything else known in the universe. Anything else known to man. The Bible even says you can't understand even your own thought and interpret them rightly, disassociated from God. And so here he's saying this sword, this double-edged sword, nonetheless, is going to divide in a certain way. 
This idea of, of double-edged or two-sided really has a description in the, in the original to say like two-mouthed. It's talking about rivers, that how uh, you have a source of a river, and then sometimes because of the terrain, it begins to get divided. The beauty of what he's saying here is that, that the word of God is so sharp that it's going to cut deeply into who you are and begin to divide that which is good and that which is evil. That which is wise and that which is unwise. That which is helpful and that which is not. This is what the word of God is going to do. He says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I love the language of the sword. Now, now we miss this. I, I love to watch uh, uh, videos and shows from a time period of, of chivalry. And so I have this imagery in my head. But you think about an archer. An archer's a long way away, and he shoots hoping to hit uh, a target. He's distanced from the war. I think the beautiful thing about the description of the word of God is it's intended to be handled closely, demonstrating that God in his kindness is willing to come near. Because when you think about a swordsman, he has to see the whites of a person's eyes to, get, to hit his target appropriately. And this is the depiction of the word, that we come near the word. And when we come near the word, not just to be a hearer, but learn to be a doer, and the word begins to divide us deeply. And how does it do that? The next little section really goes into a small poetic expression, right? It's not saying, I don't think literally, describing that this word of God is going to divide soul and spirit. I think it's using uh, poetic language to describe the depth at which the word goes. But this is how he describes it, kind of uh, poetically. He says, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And part of the reason I say that is because joints and marrow in our body are not directly connected. So we're not talking about dividing that. He's just talking about the inner person, what, what resides under the skin. And he's saying the word of God, when the natural eye can only see what's on the outside, the word of God has the ability to do something distinct and different from anything else known to man. It pierces to the depth. That's the picture. You see, the point here is that the word of God actually illuminates. It illuminates darkness. You see, this is why it's, it's difficult for us to read the word. Right? Is it a hard thing to actually read passages of scripture? I would say, man, it's not a difficult thing. It's kind of like holding your wife's hand. Is that a hard thing? If I were to ask you, gentlemen, to like right now reach over and hold your wife's hand, is that like the hardest thing you've done all week? It, it's not a hard thing to do, but why is it difficult sometimes to grab your wife's hand at night and pray with her? Because it's a spiritual issue. You're having to overcome forces in so many ways that go against what our natural man loves and desires. You say, talk about reading the word. Well, why is it such a discipline to read the word? It's because it's a spiritual issue. It's not a hard thing. We're, most of us have the ability to sit down and actually read the words of the pages of scripture. The reason it's a hard thing is because now we know that this word is active and living and it does something to expose us at levels that we're not accustomed to. It illuminates our heart. It, it, it sheds light on dark places that we don't want the word to go. When I think about illumination, I think about even my own life. Uh, I came to faith at a young age, age 11. I didn't think I was all that bad. Um, grew up in a good home with good Christian parents. Never rebelled. I didn't like flee the coop in college and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I tried to stay close uh, close in line. And so I remember thinking like some guys have some amazing testimonies and mine's just lame, right? Mine's lame. I didn't do anything exciting and fun. And 
that sort of thing. I remember having thoughts like that as if, man, it's amazing the grace of God to save that guy. I was missing the whole point of the Bible. The, the whole point of the Bible as I walked with the Lord is as I began to understand as I read the word and obey the word and the way the word sheds light on the crevices, it turns the light on into the dark places that, that we never go and don't want to go. Where we see the, the thoughts and the intentions and the desires. And I don't know if maybe it was just it took marriage and growing up a little bit and adding another sinful person into my life that would challenge me in a lot of different ways where you start to see ugly. You start to see nasty come out. And then I start to look at the guy who I thought had this wonderful testimony. I'm like, I'm him just in different form. You begin to see the beauty of the word as he flips the light on. And you see, these are all the ways that God in his grace reached down through your difficult sin and darkness and brought you to life. This is the beauty of the forgiveness of God. This is what, this is what he does. Is he raises us to life. This is not uncommon. This is what you should experience as you grow in Christ is a depth of understanding of how deep Christ had to go to forgive you in darkness. This is what the word helps us to understand. And what, what happens is now we grow in love for Christ because we see how much he loved us and he loved us, not, he loved us despite who we are and who we now see ourselves to be. This makes forgiveness a tremendous effort on behalf of God, a demonstration of love that you've never seen, experienced, nor tasted anywhere else. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 7 when Jesus is at the house of the Pharisees. He's hanging out and doing his thing and the Pharisees uh, are impressed with his teaching and all that good stuff. And there's a, a lady who comes. The Bible says she's a lady of the city. She's a, she's a sinner. She comes into the house and she gets on her, her knees before Jesus and she, she weeps and she's wiping her feet with, with her hair. And the Pharisees are quite offended as most Pharisees would be at true holiness. And what we see in that moment is Jesus commends her. And he gives understanding to the Pharisees is you don't understand forgiveness. He says, you see this lady? She understands because she's, she knows she's a sinner. She knows the difficulty of her life and the past that she has, and she's been forgiven much. And you know her response? When she sees that she's forgiven much, she loves much. But those who are forgiven little love little. And what I found early in my Christian life is I, I didn't love as deeply as some people because I didn't realize the depth at which God loved me. And what you begin to see as you grow in the Christian life and God uh, flips the lid on what's going on underneath is you begin to see the darkness and the depravity of your own heart and the ways that you think and the things that you want and the ways that you desire things that are not according to God's way. And you begin to see, God, you forgave me for that. And what breeds in your heart is love and affection toward God because now you see the depth of the way in which he loves you. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. As he's the greatest missionary I think that's ever lived, Christian missionary. And early on in his ministry, he would describe himself as the least of all the apostles. But as he grows in sanctification, as he writes in raw realities of Romans 6 and 7, well saved in his years, he says, in me and my flesh there's no good thing. He's describing himself now later in life as not just the least of all the apostles, but he sees himself now as the chief of all sinners. You see, what happens when the word of God exposes us, it's Psalm 119, 105. It's a, it's a, a word, the, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It, it illuminates what's going on in our heart. So what does the word tell us to do? 
division of joint marrow, soul, and spirit. And he says it's discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. It's discerning. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means that the word of God has the ability to diagnose. The, the Greek word is kritikos. It just simply means it's dividing. It's helping you to discern the difference between that which is good and that which is evil. That which is wisdom from God and that which is not. And, and this idea of our thoughts is not just simply like we think, random thoughts that come into our mind. And uh, you know those types of people who they have no filter and whatever th- thinking comes into their mind, it just out their mouth. You know those kinds of people. And we're not talking about thoughts in that way. We're talking about here thoughts as in reflections, the ways that you understand life. And he, what he's telling us is that the word of God is this backdrop that helps us to interpret life appropriately. That it now helps you to discern what's a, what's a good way of thinking about the world in reality and what's, what's not good. It helps you to think in wisdom. This is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Learning to take thoughts captive. This is the idea of reflecting and considering on how I see life unfold before me and how does that measure up in the backdrop of the way God describes. And why does he tell us this is important? That the word of God reaches into our heart because of things like Proverbs 4 that teaches us about the type of people that we are, the way we were designed and the way we were made to live. Proverbs 4.23 says, uh, guard your heart with all vigilance. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. If there's something that's nasty in the stream flowing downward, you can go look at the fountainhead. This is the idea that scripture is describing here. The reason that it divides to the thoughts and intentions, it discerns at that level, is because that's where the problem resides, in the darkness of our hearts. Pallison says it like this. The God who reveals his way of thinking in the Bible doesn't agree with people like Maslow and all the other psychologists. In fact, no one ever rightly understands and weighs desires without God's self-revelation in scripture. Neither lowbrow common sense nor highbrow personality theory gets it straight. God must show how to properly interpret our want because we are compulsive misinterpreters. We don't want the true interpretation. It's too threatening to the pursuit of godless autonomy that is our deepest, darkest, most persistent, and most inadmissible passion. We don't want that. That's why we run from the word often. The final thing in verse 13, I think this is critical. We see three key things here as we close. And no creature, the Bible says, is hidden from its sight. You see, it doesn't matter what we think in relation to God. We don't have to understand all that God understands, but what we know from this passage is that nothing can be hidden from him. That whatever it was that you did last night and yesterday and last week and and 10 years ago, that you're trying to hide from God, he sees it already. What the word of God is just, it, what it does is it helps you to see yourself the way he sees you. It exposes you to that degree. That, that nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees everything and he sees it differently than we understand it with our natural eye. And the second thing he says is not only uh, does it unveil everything, that no creature is truly hidden from his sight, but it, it, it makes us all naked and exposed. It makes us all naked and exposed. Now, that sounds comforting. That was a joke. You can laugh. (laughs) That doesn't sound comforting to me at all. That it makes us naked. You know why we have an aversion? Is because we don't like the thought of anyone having a window into the soul. Because, man, if people knew what was in there, they'd never love me. They'd never care for me. 
They'd never want to be with me. That's the way we think. See, the beauty of what's happening here is this is God's grace to you. That God in his kindness is willing to give you himself in his revelation so that you can be exposed. And all the things that are hiding in the crevices of your heart, those deep desires of sin and lust that are an aversion to him, he wants you to now be able to see him. Why? So that you can see the things that are killing you. You see, what happens now is that's not a cruel and angry God that just wants to leave you uh, exposed and naked before the world. It's a God that now wants you to see so that you can begin to work through the word, obeying him to crucify those things that are killing you most. That's a good God. The final thing, and I'll finish with this, is as he describes this, that we are naked and exposed, I want to turn to an illustration in scripture. In Genesis chapter three, can you turn there just briefly with me? Because I I think this narrative of scripture really helps us to understand the the truth that God is trying to teach us uh, here in this passage. I, I think this narrative early on in scripture is really helping us to understand a part of what this means to be to be exposed because I don't think it's any different in the ways in which we live today. We start in verse one, and this is what uh, Moses describes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say? We've never grown up over that question. Because what, what's happening here is the evil one, in order to help them see a different way and by different means and to measure themselves according to a different wisdom, you have to question the character of the one who's always right. Did God really say? You see, this is a question of sufficiency. Does God in his character and what he explained to you, did he explain enough to make sense of life? Did he really say? And see, when we begin to question the character of God, we think what he's given is not sufficient. And then what, what do we do? We go looking outward to some other wisdom to help us in this area or that area. You see, that's a question that's still asked today. Did God really say anything about my depression? Did God really say anything about this darkness or my anxiety or my struggle? Did God say anything about my abuse and all that I'm feeling because of that and the way I was victimized and so on? You see, that's the question of the evil one. And and the goal of that question that God has not spoken to that or questioning whether he's good enough to speak to that kind of difficulty is just simply wanting you to question the character of God so that you can be deceived in what you pursue now to find rest in. That's really no rest at all. Did God really say? If we follow on, look in verse 6, and and we see this normal pattern of sin. This is when we choose our own wisdom. This is the normal pattern of how it happens. Verse 6, it says, And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now notice what's happened here. She saw with her natural eyes, and she made a perception. And if we were to go back to our passage in Hebrews chapter 4, what's happening there is she's not considering according to the living and active word of God that he had expressed to to Adam and Eve in the beginning. What she's not doing is, is she's not considering what God had spoken. She's looking with her natural eyes, and with her natural eyes, what happens? The Bible tells us that uh, she saw something, and she determined that this food was good. Now, what had God said? What God said was that all these trees in the garden are for you. All these trees are good. I've given you fruits to eat for your good, but, but this tree is evil. Don't partake of this tree or you'll die. 
And what now with her natural eyes she begins to perceive, not according to the backdrop of the word of God and the character of God and trusting him, now what she begins to look at is the desire of her own heart. Listen to how the Bible describes it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes, what did she do? She took of it and she, she ate of it. And she gave to her husband who was also with her. And so what happens is when she delighted in her eyes and saw that it was good for food, she took and ate. That's, that's much the same way that we live life when we don't compare our life to the word and what God has said is good for us. We delight with our natural eyes and we pursue. Now, what I want you to see that happens is you know the rest of the narrative, how it unfolds. And what happens in the rest of the narrative is, is uh, Adam and Eve see themselves as naked and ashamed before God. And in the garden, what's, what happens now is they, they recognize it and they, they run and they hide. And in their hiding, running away from God, what they try and do in noticing and feeling their guilt and shame is they look for something to, to cover. Now, if you and I were watching a 30-minute a reality TV show at that moment and we were to see Adam and Eve, we would see that they were absolutely and physically naked at that moment. With our natural eyes, we could, we could see that and that they were exposed and that there was shame to be had at that moment. But notice what they do. They go, the Bible says, and they get fig leaves. And, and you notice what happens when you take something that's, that's living and you break it away from its source? It, it actually starts to die. So in their own strength and in their own wisdom, they see and feel the guiltiness. They see and feel the shame. They're exposed and they get the fig leaves and they sew them together and they, they cover themselves. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. We're back to our reality show and, and that, that happens. They cover themselves. What can you see with your natural eye? What you notice is, oh, they're, they're, they're actually covered now. They're not naked anymore. They're actually, they're actually covered. And see, that's the deception that happens. The deception that happens when the word of God unveils something and exposes the nakedness within us and we feel the guilt and the shame and the terror of the life that we've had. We go looking for, for fig leaves. We go, we go looking for temporal substitutes. You see, the problem with these fig leaves is as soon as we pull them off the tree, they start to die. And what happens, then you have to have a, a different type of fig leaf to cover yourself again once that one deteriorates because it's not worthy to cover you for now and all time. You see, the picture that we see here, I think, is relevant to where we are today because what I see happening is it's evident, the Bible tells us it will be so, that it, it, nothing is hidden from God and we will all feel this guilt and shame and this nakedness and exposing because of the lives that we've had. I fear what's happening is we are settling for temporal fig leaves to cover our shame. And here's the reality, they, they appear to our natural eyes if they work. But the problem is that they're temporal and they're never ending and then we have to go get more fig leaves and more fig leaves and we find ourselves pursuing the way to cover ourselves up is in our own strength. That's the never-ending story. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, the beauty of what we see there, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, we have to remember that for every single one of us who are in this room, we will all stand before God and give an account. And here's the scary part. When you stand before God and give an account, Whatever it is that you've been trying to cover yourself up with, that's going to be exposed as well. You see, you notice when God came in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve were hiding, notice how God saw them. Did God see them as covered by the fig leaves? 
No, he didn't see him. How did he see him? As naked and as ashamed as ever before. Because what they had put over themselves, God could see right through. We know this because of what God provided. You see, what God provided was a foreshadowing of what was to come. What God provided was a sacrifice where blood needed to be shed so that the shame and the guilt that was exposed by our own wisdom would be covered by the mercy and the grace of God. Can I tell you the, the, the purpose of the exposing of the word of God, the diagnosing of your soul, the bringing to light all that's hidden and that we're ashamed of, that exposes us and makes us naked in the world. The beauty of what God does there is he's not exposing you to embarrass or to destroy you. He's exposing you as a grace so that in that guilt and in that shame, we begin to see that God has provided clothing. God has provided a covering. And friends, let me tell you, this is what happens. When we feel that guilt and shame, we run somewhere to, to cover it with. Some of us run to food as a comfort. Some of us run to different places. Some of us run to the opposite sex. Some of us run to sexuality. That's what we want. That's what fills us and covers the shame that we have. We run to all sorts of things. Money, those are fig leaves. They will leave you naked and exposed when you stand before God to give an account. Can I tell you that there's only one thing and it's not something you can manufacture. It's not something that you can find in your own human wisdom. But by the wisdom of God, Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus is the wisdom. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. And the whole story of the picture of scripture is that Jesus came and lived a perfect life of righteousness. For what purpose? So that you could be clothed in his righteousness. That a sacrifice was necessary and blood was shed. For what purpose? That in God exposing you by his word, letting you see the guilt and the shame that you have, God in his kindness was not doing that to destroy you. God in his kindness was doing it to show you his love toward you, the depth of his love by sending Christ to do what? To clothe you in his righteousness. This is the language of Paul in Ephesians chapter one, about 12 times in that short stint of scripture, we see that we are clothed in the beloved. We are in him. We are hidden in Christ. Do you hear the language? And now the, the guilt and the shame, which is the cure for all that's diagnosable in our soul. God now, in his provision for us, has given us his son to clothe us when nothing that we can muster will do. We should praise the Lord for that. We should praise the Lord that he has not only exposed us and helped us to see what we can't see, but in his kindness and grace throughout this word, revealing himself as he's clothing us with his mercy, clothing us with his grace, and specifically in the Lord Jesus. Do you know him today? What is it that you're trusting in and hoping in? What are you covering yourself with? Or is it temporal things that will pass away? Because we will all stand before God and the only thing that will cover you is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus that cures the soul. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the path to rest. The scripture is sufficient to diagnose and to cure the soul. And praise the Lord, that's good news. Father, we're grateful for today. We're so thankful for your word. Lord, the way that you love us in your kindness, 
that, that you don't run from us in our brokenness, you run to us. And God, you've done that in the person of the Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray that when we feel that uh, nakedness and that ashamedness and that guilt, that we wouldn't run to, to make clothing of our own. Father, would you help us to run to you? Run to you in the provision that you've made in your son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray.